You're listening to KUOW. I'm David Hyde, and this is KUOW's District 6 City Council debate. The district covers Ballard, Fremont, and Green Lake. Mike O'Brien is a city council incumbent. He was first elected in 2009. Thanks for being here, Mike O'Brien. Thank you, David. Glad to be here. Catherine Wheatbrook is his opponent. She's co-chair of the City Neighborhood Council in Ballard. She also works as a facilities manager for a group of nonprofits. Catherine Wheatbrook, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us today, David. So I want to start just by giving listeners a chance to get to know you a little bit. And Catherine, let's start with you. When did you move to Seattle and why? Well, I was born here, so that was my parents' decision. Uh, I lived on Harvard Avenue East for about six months, and there was a uh, house fire next door, and my parents decided to move to Magnolia. (laughs) All right, Mike O'Brien, what about you? Born in Seattle, too. Um, Northwest Hospital, not quite in District 6, but close. I could bike there from here. Um, and grew up in Seattle, Seattle area my whole life. Um, went to college back in North Carolina, but have been back here ever since. All right, Catherine Wheatbrook, some people currently on the city council think that when it comes to issues like rent control or affordable housing or wages, the city needs to move further to the left faster. What about you? I think the Seattle Times endorsement, frankly, summed it up. I'm a little bit pragmatic. Uh, When the whole rent control discussion came up, I talked with our state legislators who told me, basically, that's not going to happen anytime soon. And while that doesn't mean that we don't ask, um, it does mean that we don't rely on that uh, as a primary tool. Mike O'Brien, same question, uh, but let's flip it a little bit. Who wants to take the city further to the left faster? You? Or your opponent? Well, I hesitate to comment on what my opponent wants to do. I'll let Catherine <laughs> speak for herself. But I do um, – you know, the issue of, of the left-right thing, I think, is is one of the things that sometimes we get tied up around in, in politics that, that sometimes is unsettling and, and doesn't lead to productive conversations. But I, I definitely have a lot of progressive values. And absolutely, when I look at what's happening in the city right now, when it comes to the cost of living, I think we need to move aggressively – for government regulation and intervention to help Seattle remain affordable to the spectrum of folks that we need to be in this city, to be a great city, and to make the city function. And that includes looking at ways to stabilize rents for folks. It includes looking at totally new tools to create significant amounts of more affordable housing. Um, And it means looking at things like making sure everyone who has a job in Seattle, that job pays enough so they can afford to, to support themselves and raise a family in our city. And you worked on the mayor's housing affordability task force that led to the so-called grand bargain, which basically, without getting into all the details, says developers have to give something up, which is affordable housing. And in exchange, they get something, which is more units. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some people say it doesn't go far enough in pressing developers. What do you think? Well, so this would be the first time in Seattle's history that there would be a requirement that all new development in our commercial and multifamily zones would be required to be providing affordable housing as they build. And the plan is that they would build 6,000 units of affordable housing over the next 10 years. This is effectively about a $600 million um, you know, developer impact fee for affordable housing over the next decade. Um, we believe that this plan will triple the amount of affordable housing that we produce in the next decade compared to the last decade, which is a significant increase. Do we need more? Will we likely need more? Probably. I would like to see it go further, but I don't know that we can take um, do more than triple it at this time, and I think this is a great step forward that we should embark on and see where we end up, and we may have to come back and look for m- new tools after we establish this. Catherine Wheatbrook, you've said that there were a lot of missed opportunities mm-hmm. in the grand bargain. What did it get wrong? 
Well, we'll start with requiring development minimums um, in the low-rise zone. So we, about three years ago, said that in a neighborhood commercial zone, you have to build up to at least 50% of its capacity. Uh, and we have not imposed that requirement on our low-rise two and three zones are, are somewhat intended to be more dense uh residential development areas. Uh, And that was a real missed opportunity because what we're seeing is they are building the same three-quarter of a million dollar townhomes in those areas that are supposed to be dense uh, that as they are in the lower density areas. So I think that's one missed opportunity. Uh, Also, we missed uh, the opportunity to really leverage our bonding capacity, uh, something councilmatic bonds, to acquire naturally occurring affordable units that already exist in the market as they become available for sale, such as the Lock Haven. And what would you do once you acquire them? I think we we run them. We have them as a city. We may run them as a city. We may turn them over to a nonprofit. I think that management structure can be worked out. But by holding those and, and getting those before we put 450 people out of affordable units, uh, we help. It's it's another tool in the toolkit. Mike O'Brien, we're already seeing a fair amount of condos and large apartment building, buildings along Market Street in Ballard, uh, which really has been the plan for some time. Mm-hmm. Where else do you think Ballard needs to see more density? Or anywhere else in District 6? Well, it's a great question. There's... there's um, there's a lot of opportunities where we've seen growth over the last 10 years. Fremont, um, Ballard, there's a lot happening in Greenwood right now. Green Lake has had spurts of growth and continues to see growth. Um, you know, the reality is District 6 is a wonderful district. It's a great place to live. And there's a lot of great amenities, access to great schools, access to great parks, access to great business districts. You know, statistically, a kid raised in District 6 is going to do better than they will in some of the other districts in Seattle. And so as we look forward, specifically, you know, our urban villages is the places where we'll be looking to concentrate growth. That's been our strategy, and I think it's a good strategy. We can concentrate the growth where we will be investing in increases in transit service. Um, and that's the place where we can have a mix of housing, including affordable housing or smaller units that make it affordable for some folks. Um, but we need to have that conversation with communities, too, so that they can decide where it's appropriate to grow in their community and what are areas that they don't think um, pressure for growth would make sense. Same question. Uh, where else do you think we need to see more density? We're seeing a lot, let's say Market Street and Ballard. People have seen a lot of growth lately. Where else should we add density? Well, I want to tune your question a little bit. Um, it's not just been along Market Street. It's been no, everything no, from not. Market yeah. Street up to 65th. Yeah. So it's not just one corridor. It's a very um, large area that has seen you know, sometimes five construction projects at the same time. Uh, on one street. So where do we need to see it? I think we need to look at how we're utilizing our existing zoning capacity, like I touched on earlier, and making sure that we're really getting out of it what we should be getting out of it, what we expected to get out of it. Then I think we need to work with the communities and figure out what makes sense, because we have a very geographically diverse area, and what might make sense on large lots over towards Green Lake may not make sense elsewhere. 
Uh, we, I think we need to look at 15th Avenue Northwest and see what we did there and the lot sizes and why we haven't seen some of the redevelopment there. Uh, and we need to look at areas like Crown Hill, which has a lot of development capacity right now. Why is it we're not seeing the development there? And and start from there. Who, in your view, are the top, say, two most effective city council people in Seattle today? <clears throat> Nick Licata, I think he's been a tremendous friend to arts uh, and to the social services. I, I have a great respect for him, and I wish him the most amazing retirement uh, ever. Uh, he's certainly earned it. Um, and, um, you know, I think that Jean Godden, over her, his, over her career, has done a lot of really good things. And I look, you know, I wish her a great retirement as well. Mike O'Brien, same question to you. I'm not sure that you should name yourself. Well, you're not going to get an answer from me, just to be fair. I'm going to sit down and work with these folks in about an hour. So, Who do you admire? That's a good question. Um, Nick's someone that I've looked up to a lot. Um, You know, Nick and I come from um, pretty different backgrounds. I come out of the environmental community. I was a... Um, I've been a volunteer with the Sierra Club for about 15 years, including chairing the statewide chapter for a number of years. Um, but Nick is someone who has been, um, you know, a real mentor of mine on the council, someone who would um, kind of help me navigate the halls and understand how things worked. Um, sometimes, you know, giving me clearance to, to go a different direction than he was going when he knew that's where I wanted to go. Um, but, you know, I would say that that's true for a lot of folks. I've, I've worked closely with Councilmember Burgess and Councilmember Harrell, and they have also both been folks that would offer me advice. And, you know, I, I have strong disagreements with all those three on certain issues. Um, and at the same time, I've worked closely with them on issues that I care about. And one of the nice things about city council is that um, because it's not so, uh, so politicized like in Olympia where there's Democrats and Republicans, um, you know, you're fighting someone in the morning and in the afternoon you're working closely on a bill. And it creates, I think, a, a collegial environment where we still have real disagreements, but we manage to get a lot of things done. And I think that's something that I hope we can preserve into the future. And I, I think we will. It's something that I think rem- reminds me a lot of what Seattle is all about. Mike O'Brien, another issue that's come up this year is rent control. You recently supported a city council resolution asking the state to lift its ban on rent control. Why did you do that? Well, I, as I mentioned before, I think it's critically important. There, you know, Over half the city right now is, is in a position where they're renting. Um, and that means that in a market like this, um, they are living in fear day to day, month to month, is am I going to get a rent increase that I can't afford? And um, when I hear the stories, even when someone gets 60 days notice of a $500 rent increase, there's nowhere to go. There's not affordable options out there. I mean, if they're, if they're low income enough to qualify for affordable housing, there's long lines for those. And in the market rents, it's really hard to find. So they're often faced with moving onto the street or into a vehicle or moving a long ways out of town. So we need tools like rent control. And I, um, I actually had, had conversation with state legislators who said, Mike, if, if you want us to change the role in rent control, we need to hear specifically from Seattle that you're asking us to do that. And that's I think, was an important thing to do in that resolution. Catherine Wheatbrook, what about you? Are price controls the answer? Well, if you look at New York and San Francisco, uh, I I think we should take great pause in looking at price control. That doesn't mean that we cannot create programs that incentivize landlords to keep rents under control, uh, that make it 
attractive and financially equitable to do so. I've spoken with a lot of landlords who, particularly the smaller ones, who already keep their rents low and would very much welcome a conversation about can we get low or no interest loans to help us weatherize our buildings or help keep rents low or keep up with the changing codes. Uh, We have some amazing landlords out there who are willing to be partners and willing to be partners next week. Um, And I think we need to focus on some of those short-term opportunities while we're talking about longer-range opportunities. I want to follow up with a question for you about transportation. Mm -hmm. Um, Seattle's got a big choice this fall when it comes to this $930 million Move Seattle levy, the city's transportation package. It covers everything from street maintenance to more rapid bus lines. And you've come out against it, or you've got some problems with it. Mm -hmm. What's the issue there? What are your concerns? Several things. One, there's no commitment to specific projects in it. That concerns me. I really like the old Pro Parks levies where we said, we are committing to these 12 projects, and then we're going to have an opportunity fund to take care of other things. I think that's a very responsible, transparent process that allows the community hold the, the city council accountable. Let me just stop yeah. you there. Mike O'Brien, what do you think? Is there enough accountability in the Move Seattle levy? Absolutely. I think it's the right mix. I think it's a critically important piece of infrastructure investment. We hear folks in Seattle talk regularly about, oh, the missed opportunities in the past to make investments in the transportation system we want, and here's an opportunity to do it. The Bridging the Gap um, had a citizen oversight committee that um, manage that process from beginning to end. And if you talk to the folks that are on that, um, they said that process worked amazingly well. They held the city accountable. They're the ones that lay forward the recommendations. And that same process will carry forward to move Seattle. This is a nine-year levy. It's a long time. To make commitments of exactly what we're going to be building in year nine, when we don't even know what that transportation world looks like, we want some flexibility. That makes sense. Let me just ask about the price tag, $930 million. Some people say the city's overtaxed when it comes to property. Mm-hmm. And specifically, there's some concern about, say, seniors on fixed incomes and how much they can afford if they own their own homes and are paying property taxes. Is it a regressive tax from your point of view? How do you solve that? You know, how concerned are you about taxes? Yeah. Um, very concerned about taxes. Um, unfortunately, um, Tim Iman has helped create this environment where, um, going back over a decade, we can only raise our property tax 1% a year. And that means we cannot keep up with inflation on the costs it takes to run and maintain a city. And so in the first couple of years, we can get by with it. But now we're so many years out that we are behind. And so that same Tim Iman law that said um, 1% cap also said, unless you go back to voters. And so that's what we've done in Seattle repeatedly is go back to voters to basically keep pace with the, the needs that we need to invest. As to your question for seniors, um, very sympathetic to that and very concerned about it. We have programs at the state level, both for low-income seniors to not have to pay um, income taxes if they qualify, sorry, um, property taxes. And even for all seniors, there's a way to defer those taxes till the house is sold. So there's ways we can preserve folks living in it. As far as regressivity, you know, 50% of um, property taxes are paid by single-family homeowners. Obviously, if you have a big house on the lake, you're paying a much bigger chair than if you have a small, smaller house in the city. Um, 
28% are played by businesses, commercial properties, 11% by condo owners, and 11% by renter, by apartment owners. And even if all of that 11% gets passed on to renters, that means renters are paying a disproportionately smaller portion of this tax. So I think it is relatively progressive when it comes to taxes. Catherine Wheatbrook, what are your thoughts about the price tag, $930 million and the tax burden? It's a pretty big number. Uh I think that with the um, – we have a lot of, of choices to make on levies coming up. And if we're talking about real transportation movement and really big projects, you know, I've got to weigh the preschool initiative, the Sound Transit 3 coming up next year, uh, hopefully another uh, much larger low-income housing kind of levy, and – I look at all of those. I look at those homeowners um, who are not wealthy, who are on fixed income, who still have to pay uh, the property tax because they might not quite qualify for the discounts, um, and they're being economically evicted. So I think the price tag is too big, um, and I think when it comes to all the levies that we are going to be asked to pass in the next two years, this one just doesn't come out in the top three. Uh, and I just feel that we have to be fiscally responsible and pick our priorities. And I am so committed to a Sound Transit 3 that brings real, actual transportation changes to our community that we really needed 20 years ago uh, that I'm not willing to risk that. Catherine Wheatbrook, uh, I want to ask you about another issue that's come up in Ballard, which is a proposed tent city there. Uh, This is along Market Street, kind of near the Sloop Tavern, if you know that area. Yes. listeners out there. Uh, (laughs) What are your thoughts? I should say some neighbors were concerned about it. Others were supportive of it. Where do you stand? Well, the process was certainly broken. Uh, I I believe that the city council should have uh, put in the legislation what they expected the process to be as far as community engagement. I think that was a huge miss. So the process is a problem. I think that By not engaging the community, we missed an even bigger opportunity because identified right now is a site that could house or house, have tents for more than twice that number of people that Cher has determined is a superior location that the community is supportive of. And it would be open by now if the conversation had started in February. So I think it was a missed opportunity. I also, for that particular site, See, it is incredibly challenging. It doesn't mean that those challenges are insurmountable. They could be addressed. But I have not seen the city or the council act in such a way that gives me confidence that those challenges would be met. And I'll use as an example the lack of paying bills promptly for Tent City 3, which was providing services to the city of Seattle. They lost their garbage service for three months, and their porta-potties were three days from being pulled because the city couldn't make up its mind about paying the bills promptly. So could the Market Street site be successful? It could be. Do I see the willingness and the track record of the council and the city to make it successful? Not at this time. And it saddens me greatly because we have a lot of people at risk on the street who need the protection of those temporary tent encampments that we're still using Unfortunately, 15 years later, because we haven't addressed the underlying issues. 
Mike O'Brien, uh, Tent City. Yeah, so I, I obviously disagree. Um, we, unfortunately, it's embarrassing that in a city that's creating so much wealth, we haven't figured out how to house everybody in our city. Um, and the reality is that um, while we're creating so much wealth, we're also creating more poverty. A $100 rent increase results in a 15% increase in homelessness. And we're seeing that on the streets right now. And so unfortunately, we don't have enough affordable housing today to meet those needs. And so this is not a long-term solution, but we need temporary solutions to help stabilize folks like tent cities, like um, parking lots for folks to live in their vehicles. And, um, you know, you look at the land the city owns. We don't have a bunch of land that's just set up ideally to host tent encampments. Um, the Market Street site is one of the few sites that's going to work, and we're going to probably get that up and running relatively soon. Um, and the city is fully committed. This is the first time the city will have sanctioned encampments where we are requiring services. Catherine talks about 10 City 3. That was located in Shoreline. We don't, you know, we don't invest in human services outside the city for a host of reasons, um, but we still try to provide support. But when, um, when they are in the city and in this new construct where it's a, a city-sanctioned tent encampment. We are going to be both investing in support services and also requiring um, human services on site. So we are working with the individuals there to do everything we can to get them back into transitional or permanent housing and out of tents. Catherine, what would you do differently about the tent city? If you were on the council right now, Mm -hmm. what would you do to address some of your concerns? I think we need to ask the community what locations they see, what opportunities are there. Uh, And frankly, I think we need to move beyond tent cities aggressively. We We seem to be stuck in this, well, we'll provide tent cities and safe parking for a few folks while we try and figure out how to build things. What's in the middle? There has to be something in the middle. Other cities have looked at uh, any number of solutions. I think we need to aggressively find a space for more of the homeless that are living in their cars. And whether that's designating certain street ends for short periods of time, whether that's working with industrial areas or perhaps the port about some property, whether that's being strategic when we have a building that's going to be demolished, uh, such as the Pie Bank building where Mary's Place was able to move in for for a number of months and provide shelter before the North Precinct is being built. I think we need to really engage with the community with the development community, and see what opportunities are out there. Uh, Just be much more strategic and much more nimble uh, rather than, oh, we have tent cities, we have some safe parking spaces, and eventually we'll build something. Mike O'Brien, I want to ask about another topic, which is this is our first year where we're going to have a district system. It's going to be a new thing for the city. And I wonder if you've thought about what it's going to be like to be a lawmaker in this new environment and how much of your attention needs to focus on issues that are specific to District 6 versus citywide issues, what the right balance is in terms of your approach and how you differ from your opponent. Um, Well, it's going to be a whole new world and it's an exciting new world, frankly. You know, I've lived in this district in my home for over 20 years. It's where um, my kids have lived their whole life and they've been raised. Right now, you know, through the end of the year, I represent all of Seattle because uh, all of us are elected citywide. And that means that I spread myself out across the whole city trying to, um, you know, equally balance the needs of all parts of the city. Um, I also chair a committee, the Land Use Committee, and so I work on land use issues throughout the city. 
Um, the switch to districts is going to be, I think, um, a really positive change because what will happen is um, whoever gets elected, I hope it's me, um, will have a chance to be the kind of first line of accountability from an elected official for the folks that live in that district. And I imagine that I will be able to spend, you know, half my time focusing on folks, things that happen in that district, the front line of this isn't working for me. How do we fix it? At the same time, um, all of us will be chairing a committee that has a specific topic area and would be serving citywide. And I think it's important that to recognize that the council members, even though we are elected at districts, we are setting policy for the entire city. And it's still going to be important to be out there understanding the needs throughout the city. A lot of the needs in different parts of the city are very similar to what's happening in District 6. So there's some overlap there. But there are also broader things around income inequality that I think the city needs to be working on. Things like rent control. How do we do that? Could it work? What do we do about massive regional transit investments like Sound Transit. Um, those are all really important things that are much bigger than just District 6 that I would also see myself working on if I have the chance to be elected. Catherine Wheatbrook, same question to you. What's the balance going to be if you're elected to the city council between focusing on District 6 issues and focusing on city issues? And how are you going to be effective at balancing those things? Well, I see the local issues as a way to inform policy, what's what's working, what isn't, what's missing, uh, what maybe shouldn't be there. So as far as balance, and, and I think we also have some state and some, some broader issues in that. So is it 50% to the district and 40% citywide and 10% you know, dealing with bigger things? I don't know that putting specific numbers on it uh, – is is the right choice. But I definitely see a, a large amount of my time being spent helping people in the district, connecting people in my district with folks in other districts who are seeing similar challenges and want to work collaboratively together to address those. Because Shoreline Street problems or car camping or problems with heroin addiction in the, in the parks, those are things that go across the city. Uh, frankly, across the county. And I think part of my role is connecting those folks together. But I I definitely see a a good chunk of my time in the district. And I've already set office hours for things like that. I have just a couple minutes left, but I wanted to end on kind of a fun question. Hopefully hopefully it's a fun (laughs) question. Um, In all of human history, who's your political idol? If you had to pick one, and why? Boy, there's so many phenomenal choices out there. how about apolitical? Apolitical, yeah, right. I'm, 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 I'm going to pick one. Um, I think Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, for the the perseverance and the approach, uh, and really just, I think overcoming amazing challenges. Mike O'Brien. Um. Martin Luther King is someone that I really admire, and specifically, you know, someone who overcame so much adversity for communities. And you know, I know that the work that he started has a long way to go to be finished, but the courage it takes for so many people, and they, we have these people within our communities too, to stand up in the face of everything is stacked against them. And to say, we're not going to accept that this is unfair, this is unjust. And we as human beings, we as Americans, um, this is not how we're supposed to lead our lives. 
and to just keep pushing against a system that is meant to oppress them. And in the end, having some victories is just uh, inspiring and gives me hope. And we need more of that. Michael Bryan, thank you so much. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Catherine Wheatbrook, thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to KUOW's District 6 City Council debate on KUOW. I'm David Hyde. Thanks for listening.